I'm Jamila Rizvi, and this is Anonymous Was a Woman, a Future Women and Penguin Books podcast. Each week, my co-host Astrid Edwards and I will celebrate the stories of women, the stories that engage women readers, and the women who write those stories. Our guest today is Chloe Hooper. Astrid, right now the world is facing two crises. We've got a global pandemic on the one hand and climate change on the other. We seem to be responding kind of quickly to the pandemic, scaling up, changing our world incredibly rapidly. Not so much with climate change. First things first, though, our topic today is anxiety in times of crisis. How's your anxiety? Hello, Jamila. My anxiety is really quite high. There is nothing else to say for it. How are you adapting to a life in isolation? It feels at the moment like we really are shrouded in these little safety bubbles at home and yet we know what is going on out there in the world on the front line for our health workers, for our teachers, for even people who are working at the grocery store. And we know that deaths are happening, but for a lot of us, it feels kind of far away. It does. I have to say, I am adapting by reading books and throwing myself into the arts, and that is not a surprise to anybody who knows me. Books are my saviour at the moment. I turn to fiction when I want to escape my world, and then I turn to non-fiction when I, feel that, when I feel that duty to go closer to it, to witness it, to know what is happening in the world around me. It's funny, so many people have said to me as a writer at the moment, oh, I hope you're keeping a diary. I hope you're you know, coming to the end of each day or waking up in the morning and writing down how you feel. I'm not doing any of that. There is this idea that writers have a duty to witness, to chronicle, to help others understand what is happening. And writers can choose to take that up. And I guess perhaps the journalists are going first, those who report to us daily. But also, it's hard to understand what is happening at the moment. And as a writer, just like everyone else, uh, you might need more time to process. I mean, we are living history right now. Give yourself weeks or months or years to reflect on what this all actually might mean and where it might take us. But then, yes, I do think you, Jam, should write about this. <laughs> <laughs> I, should, I should get off my bum and stop watching Netflix and actually do some writing. Our guest today is the wonderful author Chloe Hooper, who, amongst other works, wrote The Arsonist, which is about the 2009 Black Saturday bushfires in Victoria. And we're going to be talking to her about whether or not it's going to be the fiction or the non-fiction stories that will save us. I've got to say that I'm someone who turns to fiction when I want joy and when I want happiness and when I don't want to be anywhere near the world that is around me. Are you the same? I'm actually a bit different. I turn to fiction when I want to escape my current world, but I love reading dystopian fiction. I love reading about the end of the world. Oh, Astrid, that's a quote. <laughs> Look, I'm that person, okay? I love the whole pandemic literature thing. So I find my escape in fiction, but I really like going to the dark places. Astrid, that is a very severe split when it comes to the terrifying world around us and how we process it. I think we need a deciding judge. And who better to chat to than our author, Chloe Hooper? Chloe Hooper is a highly awarded writer of fiction and non-fiction. The Arsonist, A Mind on Fire, is her 2018 non-fiction masterpiece, shortlisted for the Victorian Premier's Book Awards, set against the compelling backdrop of the infamous Black Saturday bushfires. There were 180 fatalities and 414 people injured 
in nearly 400 individual fires on Black Saturday. Two of those fires were deliberately lit by a man who then sat on the roof of his house and watched the flames. The arsonist is the story of that man. It's the story of the community he came from, the fire he lit and the people who were killed. Chloe, welcome. Thank you for having me. I'm going to go straight in with the big guns. Do you think it's easier for a community to focus on courts, law, justice, punishment over climate change and its associated anxiety? And by that I mean, are we looking for someone to blame for a fire rather than trying to make sense of our own complicity in changing climate? I think we, we it's much easier to scapegoat somebody and to look at uh look for a culprit you know in a way today um george pell has been released from jail and it's easier for us in a way to sort of look at at pell rather than a whole system of of injustice and abuse and and likewise um it's easier to look at a figure like Brandon Sokolok, who, who, who lit one fire on Black Saturday, rather than to perhaps look at the systemic factors behind his fire setting, and which sort of takes us all the way to uh, Australian's coal industry, because he grew up in the shadow of, um, of Hazelwood Power Station, where his father worked and where everybody, all his neighbours worked, and to kind of look at some of the dysfunction that that is endemic around resource extraction sites. The Asinus was published in 2018, Chloe, and we sit here recording in 2020 after another series of incredible fires in Victoria and around Australia. Now, we are talking about anxiety and what we can do about the state of the world or how the state of the world makes us feel. I'm interested in how you feel, having gone so deep into the 2009 fires. I mean, in a way, those the fires of this summer, it, it felt like a, an apocalyptic movie, didn't it? Except, I guess, in the sort of uh, in the apocalypse genre, uh, people are blithely going about their daily lives, and then something extraordinary happens, uh, and they're, they're sort of blissfully unaware until this sort of moment of doom. Whereas uh, climate scientists have given us all the information we've needed for decades to to know that this was uh, our future, and now the future is here. It's fascinating to be having this conversation in the in the midst of the coronavirus, COVID nineteen, because actually we have seen that our government can respond to facts. We can mobilise very quickly and suddenly change our society and everybody sort of communal and individual behaviours in the wake of science. But it's interesting too that it's because the terror comes because we might die rather than the ecosystems that we depend on dying. We kind of see that as happening further down the track. And so with COVID, we may perish. And that has actually motivated us to uh, to live differently. We're discussing both fiction works and non-fiction works today. So much of fiction at the moment has an underlying setting that looks to climate change or looks to pandemics or things that are happening in our real world as well. You write both fiction and nonfiction. Do you think one genre is more compelling than the other when it comes to communicating the urgency of major crises like climate change or a pandemic? Well, it's very interesting, isn't it, thinking about storytelling uh, in in 2020, because in a way, you know, it's all we've got. And storytelling about 
climate deniers, you know, their denialism is a form of storytelling as well. And, you know, as is environmentalist tales. And the question that you invited me uh, to speak with you today was about whether or not sort of fact or fiction can do the heavy lifting that we need to do. And, And you almost, it almost seems the answer is neither. But uh, in, in terms of, I mean, we sort of, you know, until uh, COVID-19, it seemed we just were sort of rushing headlong towards our peril without changing anything. Of course, this is a sort of pandemic has completely shifted, you know, all of, all of our systems. But I think that there's something very interesting in the idea of, can we imagine a world where we don't perish from climate change, where where we don't uh, sort of follow the script of Cormac McCarthy's The Road. And is it incumbent on storytellers of, of, of all mediums to actually um, think about what this future might look like? And can we then sort of work backwards? I've heard that The Matrix, apparently, the 1999 film, has actually sort of um, engendered thousands of technologies we didn't have beforehand. And so is there a role for imaginative works, fiction, to actually, you know, lead us into a better future? I, I guess that's a sort of hopeful way of looking at, at, the, at, at storytelling. Well, Chloe, I do hope we can all avoid the future that Cormac McCarthy paints in the road. <laughs> I do too. One of the things I notice about The Arsonist, which is nonfiction, is your prose. The way you write, particularly about the fire and the heat and the intensity and what it would have felt like on the day for the people and for the animals... It's almost like fiction. It is absolutely stunning language that puts the reader, or at least it put me, in that moment in time. That doesn't always happen with nonfiction, I guess, and I wanted to thank you. But I also wanted to point out that you make me feel like I was there in the way that fiction can, Uh, but it is a very true account that you were telling me. And I found that comforting, although I'm not sure if Jamila did. When you find yourself in this time of crisis, what do you find yourself picking up? Do you go to fiction or nonfiction? I've suddenly, uh, life has changed because I've got, um, I'm suddenly turned into a governess uh, as well as uh, as a, um, you know, I don't know, an aspiring writer. I think you so, qualify as uh, more than an aspiring writer, <laughs> Chloe. Yeah, well, no, no, well, I mean, I, I aspire to be able to write um, <laughs> and, not, and not be like homeschooling. So I've been reading, when I have had the chance to read, I have to admit it's been for work. But I do think that, I mean, if we can harness storytelling as some force for change, then really you need fiction that is strongly grounded in fact and hopefully uh, factual work which has the sort of narrative force of, of, a, of a great novel. I mean, that's, that's what, you, you know, you need to blend the two really to sort of imagine great works that can change us. Fiction is so often designed to make us feel anxious you know that is what the author is trying to do to us as readers crime fiction or um my nan always used to say she loves a good she used to love a good murder that was her favorite thing to read you know they're intentionally trying to make our hairs stand up on end that's the sensation the author is uh trying to give us as the audience but at the same time it's also something that we have sought out as the reader when you're crafting a story do you think about readers as people who want to be made to feel anxious or to made to be feeling uncomfortable? Well, I mean, I think that there are gener- generic pleasures uh, in terms of, of uh, thrillers or crime books, like you mentioned. I guess that, you know, that is almost a form of escapism, is, and yet actually we're, we're living in a real-life thriller. You know, in a police procedural 
one of the pleasures of the genre is at the end, we find the killer. They're locked up and the body populace is safe again. Here we are, we're not safe. And so I think, yes, I, I, when, I'm, when I was writing The Arsonist, I wanted people to turn the page. But I also wanted, uh, after Brendan is, um, is convicted, I, I actually wanted to sort of, you know, pan, pan back and leave the reader with the image of the um, power stations, which, you know, to show that actually this situation wasn't solved because there is an incredibly high level of deliberate fire setting in that region around the coal industry in those coal fields. I know you said, Chloe, you are currently a governess living entirely new life homeschooling, but you are also an incredibly beautiful writer. When you are living history, I guess, as we all find ourselves doing now, what parts of this unfolding story do you find yourself drawn to write or perhaps uh, are you drawn to pick up and read about? I think the human detail of this is um, what sort of brings home. I mean, there's so much data, isn't there? There are graphs and numbers and then actually just human stories can make this unbelievably real and that that will always be uh, what, what will move me. It's so interesting how language emerges in time of times of crisis and new language becomes part of our vernacular. My four-year-old talked about flattening the curve yeah. the other day with his skipping rope. He has no idea uh, what that means, but it's very quickly becoming part of his world and his reality. Chloe, thank you so much for being with us today and unpacking anxiety, fact and fiction. Thank you. Thank you, Chloe. Jam, today I want to introduce you to a book by David Wallace-Wells called The Uninhabitable Earth, A Story of the Future. Now, this is nonfiction, published in 2019, but it was originally based on an article that was published in the New York magazine. Now, that article started, it is, I promise, worse than you think. If your anxiety about global warming is dominated by fears of sea level rise, you are barely scratching the surface of what terrors are possible, even within the lifetime of a teenager today. Now, that is quite the opening. It's not a sunny and optimistic introduction to a book, is it? Look, it's not. And the book itself then starts with, it is worse, much worse than you think. So this is not a positive read in the sense that you're going to read it and feel amazingly happy. But I also think it is one of the most powerful pieces of writing about climate and the world that we live in that I've actually come across. Now, it was also wildly popular at the time of publication, and I do feel this obligation to educate myself and not ignore what everyone else might know that I don't, if that makes sense. We're talking about anxiety, and we're taking a deep dive today into some books that stir up anxiety, that deal with questions of anxiety, that project us to a future that is one where we probably end up more anxious. But I'm interested in this from a reading habits perspective. You you want to wallow in that anxiety. Like you you are you are consciously making the decision in reading a book like this, any reader is, to let their mind go to a terrifying place. Why is it important for us to make ourselves anxious about these issues? I wouldn't say I'm wallowing. I would say that I'm choosing to go there voluntarily. Now, on the very simple cover, there is an image of a dead bee, a heart-rending picture of a dead bee. And every time I see it, I get this twinge of terror. But I picked this book up because I fear what climate change might mean. And I address that fear, that climate grief or the eco-anxiety that I feel by arming myself with fact. And I also think that I have a duty to witness what is happening to the world in my lifetime. 
And that itself is helpful to my anxiety because I feel I am participating. I am not sticking my head in the sand. And that just maybe if I arm myself with enough fact, I can be one of the people to actively help the future, even if it is just a little bit. The other thing to consider is that it is now rational to be alarmed. That anxiety I feel is natural, uh, particularly when I pick up this book. And that is a point that David Wallace Wells is making. And it's actually the same point that activist Greta Thunberg makes with her phrase, our house is on fire. Because the situation is dire, Jam, but I guess I feel compelled to engage with it. Why do you think it is that writers, and I mean writers of nonfiction in the broader sense, so including journalists to my mind, why is it that writers haven't been able to convince the mainstream population of the planet on the urgency to act on climate change? I mean, I... I compare it to what we've seen the last couple of months in Australia and around the world in how quickly uh, the political class have been brought to action, how quickly businesses have changed their way of doing things, how quickly we've completely uprooted our ordinary lives in order to save ourselves in a pandemic situation. Why haven't we been able to convince and communicate to people the urgency on climate. I don't have a good answer for that, and I wish I did. I wish there was a good answer. I suspect it's because climate change is so darn big and it occurs at such scale that it's easier just to put it in the too hard basket. But coming back to the uninhabitable Earth, there are so many things that are directly relevant to our daily lives in Australia, even though the book has a global focus. So, for example, what is happening in 2020, which quite frankly is a shocker of a year, can be linked to climate. So in Australia, we had the extraordinary fires and now part of the global pandemic. Both of those, extreme fires and a disease transmitted from animals to humans, are actually discussed at length in the uninhabitable earth. One of the other cheery phrases that Wallace Wells uses in the book is he says, no matter how well informed you are, you are surely not alarmed enough. So he is saying, even to people who really understand this science well, or who are well-read like you on issues around climate change have worked in the space before, that even you are not alarmed enough about what is ahead for us. Now, I'm going to put my marketing hat on for a moment, right? Marketing types would claim that nonfiction like this needs to offer some hope, some positivity, uh, some optimism for change rather than just creating this anxious cycle of negativity. Do you think Wallace Wells' book and books like it are helpful? Absolutely I do, because we can't change what is coming if we don't understand it. For example, David Wallace Wells goes into the reasons why disease vectors will change due to climate change, including the greater potential for animal-to-human disease transmission. Hold on a second. Coronavirus originated in bats, yeah? So neither one of us are scientists, but the point is that this is more likely in a climate change world where animal habitats brush up against human ones and the temperature is changing. The chapter in which Wallace Wells talks about this is called Plagues of Warming, which gives you an idea of the tone. Uh, And his point is that there are plenty coming for us. So for example, did you know that scientists have found remnants of the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic in the melting ice in Alaska? Now, of course, that pandemic is what COVID-19 is actually being compared to. So the point is, we can learn from this. I would argue that we should learn from this and all other nonfiction, even if there is some anxiety involved in reading it. What was the part of the book that most surprised you? Because you're, as I mentioned already, you're quite well versed in climate science, but here's someone who's telling you that the earth is going to become uninhabitable much faster than we expect it to. What were some of the things that stayed 
with you from this particular work? He is actually hopeful. He's a father and he sees a future where the impacts of climate change, whilst they can't be avoided, can be minimised and maybe even ameliorated. He thinks we can avoid the worst impacts of climate change if we act. And that message, particularly given by someone who has looked into the climate abyss, is beautiful. I'm glad he's got hope because I've got to say the part of the book that upset me the most, being someone who loves to cook and also loves to eat, was when he talked about food and food production. This sounds so I'm making it all about me and we're talking about the future of the planet. But genuinely, when when I was uh, reading about the uh, decreasing yields from various cereal crops and the rest, and that for every single degree of warming, we're talking about a decline of 10% or as high as 15% in terms of what we get from those plants. He pushed that sort of to its extreme and said, by the end of this century, which is a time where very conceivably my son is still alive, my son's four now, um, he will be living in a world where we potentially have 50% more people to feed and 50% less produce to do that with. And that just that, I suppose the starkness of that maths in the proximity to the lifetime of someone I know uh, he he did, I think, a beautiful job in this book of driving home the realities of catastrophic climate change in in a way that a lay person could understand and could conceptualise. I think the power of this book is that we can't act in a way to help the planet or those we love if we don't know what we are acting to avoid. So, for example, as has been made clear in our own lives and also in this book, Australia is at great risk of bushfires, increasingly severe and frequent bushfires. And in late 2019 and early 2020, we experienced those extreme bushfires. And we weren't prepared. We weren't prepared emotionally and we weren't prepared practically. And we can't get prepared until we know the science and the politics and the reality of what might happen. For those amongst us who are anxious people and who, quite honestly, are probably not going to go out and read this book and terrify the living daylights out of ourselves unless we are required to for a podcast, give them the hope that is at the end of it. What is the hopeful climax this book. The hopeful climax of this book is that if we take the science seriously and we vote in politicians who take the science seriously, there is hope for the climate and for all of us. We don't have to live in a terribly climate change world. It's just that we need to act. And that is the most wondrous thing I could be told. And it does alleviate my anxiety. anyone listening to a podcast that is about women and books is familiar with Margaret Atwood's The Handmaid's Tale. It takes place, of course, in Gilead with all its abuses and horrible misogynistic abominations. And at the time she wrote it, it was supposed to be a bit of a wake-up call to the world that women's rights could go backwards as well as forwards. Both you and I, Astrid, saw Margaret Atwood in conversation recently and she said at the time that she had that fear in the 80s and she never thought that she would need to write a sequel. In the 90s, the world went shopping, is her description. And then in the noughties, we were optimistic and we were looking to Barack Obama and a brave new world. And now when we've entered the 2010s and beyond, suddenly her work seemed relevant again. And that is how the Testaments were born. Absolutely. I first read The Handmaid's Tale, and this is going to show how old I am, in 1998 for my final year of high school. 
And at the tender age of 17, I think Margaret Atwood changed my life uh, and I could not have been happier last year when The Testaments was published. And I have to admit, I took the day off work to read it and I read it at home in one day. Oh, I love that. The last time I did that with a book was the final instalment of Harry Potter. (laughs) Now, Jem, you just introduced The Handmaid's Tale and The Testaments in relation to women's rights and reproductive rights. And we often think of these books through that lens because they are some of the most powerful explorations of what could happen to women's rights that we have. But we shouldn't forget that Atwood specifically had all of the events of her novels happen against a backdrop of a climate change world and a world that had uh, experienced at least one nuclear disaster and as a result of those things, a world in which the birth rate had dropped. Now, all of that led, in Atwood's dystopia, to the rise of Gilead and the erasure of women's rights. So she was always making a political statement about the environment and climate and what might happen if we stuff them up. And Atwood herself is not only an avid bird watcher and nature lover, she is also an environmental supporter. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. Am I reading too much into the cover of the Testaments and the fact that she chose green to match her blue? Look, I don't know. That is a really good question. It is an extremely impressive cover and the green, well, you know, it's neon green, it almost glows in the dark. But maybe Atwood is being inclusive. I mean, there was always green for the Marthas, blue for the wives. We need more research, Jim. I also love the title because the title itself provokes for me a level of anxiety. But testament makes me think of so many different meanings. It makes me think of the Bible and the Old Testament and the New Testament and perhaps an even newer testament that we're writing unwittingly now as history progresses but also that idea that in a courtroom that's what a witness gives right we give testimony we stand there and we say this is what I saw and this is what happened and I feel like as a, as a kid reading fiction I grew up reading about worlds that weren't my own and Atwood's worlds feel terrifyingly close right now. They really, really do. I mean, in the Testaments, Atwood gives voice to Lydia, Aunt Lydia, who we all know and fear, as well as June's, aka Offred's, two daughters, Agnes and Daisy. And through the voices of these women, she's painting a picture of a future we don't want. And it is it is like a warning. If we listen to others, including the climate scientists, we can avoid our fate. And I guess what I find terrifying about Atwood is that she is on record as always only putting into her fiction what has happened somewhere else in fact. She takes it from all different countries and times and weaves it together to show what we really are capable of making come to pass. I wanted to ask you about the fact that this book is written from different female perspectives and particularly about Aunt Lydia. Now, Aunt Lydia for me is this representation of some women's complicity in the wrongdoing of men, you know, being part of the patriarchy despite not belonging to it. Yet because we now get to hear the story from her perspective, we sort of get a look inside the anxiety of the villain. Did having an understanding of her motivations but also her worries, her fears, her anxieties, did it make you like her more or Did you still kind of hate her at the end of the book? Oh, look, I have a love-hate relationship with Aunt Livia. She terrified me as that young 17-year-old. And in the Testaments, she is still fearsome. She's one of the best political operators in Gilead. And I think the men eventually come to fear Aunt Lydia too. 
But what really struck me was what happened to Lydia in the first few days when everything fell apart and Gilead was founded. You know, Lydia is still dressed in her professional clothes and she's taken to the stadium. As we know from uh, all the way through the 20th century and even into the 21st century, bad things always happen in stadiums in a time of crisis. Uh, And Lydia experiences those bad things. And at that moment in time, uh, she makes the choice to become complicit in order to save her own life. Now, I don't know what I would do in that situation. And I don't think really any of us knows how we would would react. Lydia, of course, chose complicity. But then the real terror comes from when she becomes a power player and over and over again, she keeps continuing uh, to choose to be complicit. She hurts others, she manipulates others and she kills them. So yeah, she is complicit. And I do think other people would, would make the choice as well. It's just that it's just that Aunt Lydia is really, really good at it. Something that really struck me when I was consuming the testaments with a ferocious speed, not quite to match yours, but nonetheless <laughs> pretty ferocious, was how much Atwood feels like a reluctant kind of prophet, that she is prophesizing what is to come even though she doesn't want to and she's imagining this world that for me creates enormous anxiety as much as I adore her work and think it's some of the best writing of a generation I don't enjoy reading it it's not like a a joyous experience it's like I have to I have to eat the meal really quickly because I'm so ferociously hungry but it's not delicious You have such a strange response. I find myself confident that a woman of Margaret Atwood's intellect has thought through the different possible endgames that we might experience, and then she's put them on the page to warn us. And God, I find that comforting. I mean, reading Atwood actually alleviates my anxiety. One of the things I feel like she's warning us about in The Handmaid's Tale and then again in The Testaments is that when the world reacts to a crisis, we often go to quite draconian measures. And in amongst those draconian measures, we see a restriction of rights, initially with a really important and valid purpose, but that that restriction of rights can quickly go too far and that it's often women who are the ones who are hit the hardest by that restriction of rights. And I think about that lesson in the ether and it feels really poignant. And yet I think about it in the current moment where we're living through a pandemic and our lives are being heavily restricted, except that I'm kind of all for the restrictions and right now those restrictions feel so absolutely necessary but I worry that in my uh, desire to keep the people around me safe and to do the right thing that I'm losing my ability to be critical of those restrictions because there is almost a sense of do what we have to do no matter what it is. Am I getting too in my head? No, I don't think so. I mean, we're both living in Melbourne under stage three lockdown laws. And already, just a few weeks into this, I'm fearful of what I can't see and what I don't know that is actually happening around me. And you mentioned women's rights. And I think of women at risk of abuse in the home. I think of people with disabilities. I think of people with English as a second language. And I think these laws and the pandemic and the big changes that might happen, they have the potential to roll back many of the gains that have been won. And, you know, not only does that terrify me, that is the kind of thing that Atwood writes about and warns us about. I think we also can't move past that point when we're talking about authors like Atwood without noting the fact that we are being told and the world is being told right now you are safest in your home, in your own home, but for women who are the victims of violence from 
the men that they live with, as are a lot of the women of Gilead, being at home isn't safe at all. Absolutely. I read recently that women in France who are also living in lockdown are still able to go to the pharmacy and women experiencing uh, violence or at risk of violence in the home can actually say to their pharmacist, Mars 19. And Mars 19 means I'm experiencing domestic abuse and I need help. And I find that difficult to process. That is not only difficult to process, but sounds like a scene right out of Margaret Atwood's next book, doesn't it? Which really does speak to this idea we've been talking about of painting a possible world and a possible future through fiction. And I suppose giving us that sense of anxiety, but that necessary sense of anxiety about where our laws and where our society is going to give us an idea of what might be our future. Because only with that idea can we start to guard against it. And I don't think there is anyone better than Atwood when it comes to doing that in fiction. Now, Astrid, far from calming our anxiety in times of crisis, you have a recommendation that is actually another Atwood series and one that I haven't heard of that... It's probably going to stir up our anxiety rather than quell it, but nonetheless, sell it to me. All right. So we have Oryx and Crake, which was first published in 2003 and is in fact the first in a trilogy. It is followed by The Year of the Flood and Mad Adam. Now, again, like The Handmaid's Tale and The Testaments, this is set in a severely climate change world that sees the divide between the rich and the poor grow ever greater. Now, the wealthy in this world are driven to create ever greater technological marvels and genetic modifications. In some ways, these are to make the world better, uh, particularly in relation to climate. But in other ways, these technologies and genetically modified plants and animals uh, are simply created to control the population. Now, the problem with all of this, well, there are many problems with all of this, but the problem is that this all ends up in biological warfare, leading to a global pandemic. Now, we are currently living in a global pandemic, and I can't think of anybody better than Atwood to paint us a picture of where that might go. Now, this is dystopian fiction, and Atwood doesn't sugarcoat anything. But nevertheless, there is some hope in this trilogy, and I do recommend it for Atwood lovers. All right, my book oracle. A lot of mates of mine have kids, sort of upper middle primary, who are a little bit more aware of what's going on right now than others and are also really worried about climate change. This is a generation who are not just making one save the whales poster like I did in year three. What can we be giving kids to read who are worried about climate change? That is an excellent question and kids do need to engage more and we are well past a time where making a save the whales poster really is sufficient. So first off, I'm going to give you a a nonfiction recommendation for eight to 10 year olds, How to Save the Whole Stinking Planet by Lee Constable. This is very much a practical book. This will have your child not only engage with what is happening around their own home, uh, but learn to link that uh, and to understand that in light of what is happening in their city and their country. My second recommendation is a fiction book called Grimsden by Deborah Abella, and this is also the first book in a trilogy suitable for 9 to 11-year-olds. Now, this book depicts a fantastical near future where a group of children, young teenagers, are living in the top of a skyscraper in a flooded city. They are fending for themselves and adults who they know caused the flood, are the enemy. And these children band together to create a better world. These sound so good, but also make me a little bit ashamed that I don't personally seek out enough fiction or non-fiction around climate change. I suppose it's because I, I know the realities, I accept the realities, but it makes me feel despairing and, and depressed. Can you give me one non-fiction and then also one fiction 
that are going to inspire me a little bit around climate action rather than just leave me sobbing in the corner. Yes, I can, Jamila. In terms of nonfiction, you can't go past No One Is Too Small To Make A Difference, which is a collection of uh, the early speeches of Greta Thunberg. Now, if that doesn't lift your spirits, nothing will. And then I'm actually going to give you two climate fiction recommendations, both written by women writers based in Melbourne. The first is The Glad Shout by Alice Robinson. Now, this is a brilliant near-future dystopia uh, that's actually set in a flooded Melbourne. Uh, the second is Wolf Island by Lucy Trelaw. And now Wolf Island is one of the most beautiful and literary novels I have read this year. It's a pure joy to read. Well, you've just heard from the best read person I know, Astrid Edwards, on what you should be reading, what your kids should be reading when it comes to climate change and whether or not your anxiety about the future, your anxiety about the present moment is nurtured best by fiction or non-fiction. There is more than a wonderful array of options for you to choose from. My name is Jamila Rizvi and I've been chatting with my co-host Astrid Edwards for Anonymous Was a Woman. This is a podcast in partnership with Future Women and Penguin Books made by the wonderful folk at Bad Producer Productions. To make sure that you never miss an episode of Anonymous Was a Woman, please make sure that you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you feel like giving us a little rating and a quick review, that will help more people find the show. Bye. Bye.